I have no idea where this will lead us, but I have a definite feeling it will be a place both wonderful and strange. So we are back to the past and then Samurai we Jack. flash forward and there's this moment where we see the pilot scene, very beginning opening, with Josie doing the makeup and Pete going out fishing. Uh, but there's a bit of a difference this time in the sense that the body that washed up on the beach goes away yep. and Pete gets to go fishing. I just want to say a very quick side note that I think is very humorous. In the subtitles for this, the way it was worded is that Josie's humming was ominous humming, which is funny because outside of the word whoosh, ominous is probably the next most commonly used word. And a lot of times ominous noises are like supernatural evil. So I'm glad that Josie's whistling has been recontextualized with the same level of strength and language that the experiment, Mr. C, and all of the evils of Bob, mm. yeah, Josie whistling is probably up there. <laughs> I just think that, that it becomes a catch-all word way too loosely in the subtitles. It's funny. I guess it is ominous whistling, but it's not to the degree of other things that are being used <laughs> with that word. We need other vocabulary here. <laughs> we get cuts to Sarah Palmer wailing inside of her home, and this is where I think a lot of room for interpretation can come at, because she's trying to, like attack or get at the photo of Laura Palmer in some fashion. Striking at it. Striking at it. Now, there's a few ways you can do this. If you want to take a, like a very you know humanizing and maybe sympathetic approach to Sarah Palmer, it is her trying to deal very you know, aggressively, maybe unhealthily, with regret and guilt. She is trying to tear away at the memory of what she feels some sense of guilt over what happened to Laura. But the fact that it's like put in conjunction with the events before and after it I think lend as well to a potential other reading of it if you're looking at Judy involved, that this is doing something. This is doing something. So this is something where she is acting against it on the the image of Laura Palmer. Not just any image, not just any picture. The, the. picture. So given that before we see Dale Cooper leading her away and we see the potential what if of the timeline where Laura Palmer doesn't die, then we get the striking at the image. The next thing we see is that scratching noise. Well, we hear it really. The electrical scratching noise that we recognize from things such as that little like well, mob zone sitting. It's the listen to the sounds noise. Yes. And I would say your first interpretation of it being like scratching wood was very apt because mm -hmm. you brought up the idea of the scratching wood. Yes. Um, either way, that noise occurs and then when Dale Cooper looks around, Laura's no longer there. She has been pulled away. We hear this horrifying scream, and it seems very reminiscent of what happened in the Red Room where Laura was shunted off into the space cosmos. Mm -hmm. That seems to be there. Now, the question you can then form for yourself as your own viewer is the fact that Sarah Palmer striking at the picture correlated to what just happened, or is it something that is included not plot related. Like it doesn't cause an effect. She didn't do anything to Laura there. It's more Sarah Palmer dealing with grief in a separate but similar scene. It's correlated. I think I'm it's too more than I think confident. it's too closely sandwiched. To too. not like it it's if if it's not meant to be taken as cause and effect, it's a really big red herring again. This cheese belongs with the lettuce because they're right next to each other. You gotta approach it at some point Occam's razor idea, right? That if it's if it's really obvious if it's really screaming at you, you can't ignore it. Yeah. And that's where I think this indicates that Sarah Palmer, Judy, Jumping Man, whatever, all three of the above, is attacking, striking, 
doing something to the memory or image of Laura Palmer that mm-hmm. has the effect of what happens to Laura there. Mm-hmm. Now, where I think it gets more confusing for myself is, you know, did Dale Cooper taking her away from the scene necessitate this happening? Or kind of like with the fireman where he interceded and moved Mr. C, did Judy intercede and move Laura? And what I mean by that is if the striking of the photo hadn't happened, would Dale Cooper have succeeded in taking Laura Palmer to the portal and then take her out of the time? What, what would have happened? Here's the thing that we don't know. <laughs> we don't know, but I'm fairly confident in what my knowledge is because I know before we memed back and forth the importance of the ceiling fan and how I thought the importance was in the stairs. Whoosh, whoosh, I think the whoosh, importance whoosh, is here whoosh, in the stairs whoosh, too. Whoosh. Here. We begin and we end the same on this note of bad opinions, Professor. <laughs> I thought you grew. I thought you loved the fan now. When you're moving up the stairs and trying to do something up the stairs and something is moving quickly down, it's almost as if either as a response for the starting of the actions or as a response of trying to do something, if you're running down the stairs and you're running off somewhere, what I interpret that as is that now something is acting in action, either as a response that Cooper is like getting closer and closer or simply as a inevitability. Even if whatever Cooper's going to be doing up those stairs, if someone's running down the stairs to go to the breaker and pull down the switch, uh, I think that's what's happening. I think that things are acting around Cooper as Cooper is trying to recover, try to help and trying to Lancelot. So in this respect, as Cooper is ascending and moving forward right now, someone's moving down to the foundation, down the stairs, and things are starting to get rolling. In this case, Sarah Palmer's actions. Professor, I think it's time we talk about Judy. I'm going to go crazy. Let's talk about Judy. I'm going to go crazy at this because Zhao Day went from a full 180 inside my head. For one, it was like the sense of like, oh yeah, no, no, uh, extremely negative force. Oh yeah, Jao Day. Oh, now we have to keep it in that negative end. And I kind of like tossed it aside because I was too busy laughing because it was like actively being interpreted and speaking towards us. Jao Day, with this new context, I find very chewable. I, I, I find it very chewable. And I think chewing is going to be the biggest thing I'm going to bring forward well, with this. Chewbacca, go ahead and... That's the Chewbacca noise, right? Yes. I made the parallel already, but for just a quick note, a means of like an extreme negative, an extreme negative force that happens. I've compared that the Hiroshima bomb that drops down, that is something that has very negative emotional context. And there's also the idea of a deep emotional negativity coming from Sarah Palmer after everything has happened to her. Now, Mr. C is searching for Mr. C, by extension, is Bob. What has Bob done in the past? Sought out pain and suffering because that is Garmin Bosia. I'm going to be using a lot of Fire Walk With Me in this respect because I do find Fire Walk With Me to be the literal accommodation of Lil, the cipher, the thing that you look to and you keep the pieces and then you bring that over to the return to appoint them, kind of look at it and... I'm feeling positive emotions towards the idea of using this as a cipher. But continuing, Garmin Bosia is not only a form of sustenance that we've seen from the arm, but it's also what I would argue is a form of currency because mm-hmm. Bob is paying back the arm 
by giving forward this currency. All so tracks that tracks, yeah. The idea of Garmin Bosia pain and suffering, if you wanted a deep valve of pain and suffering, and if an entity is as powerful as the experiment to bring an extreme amount of negativity, that would be what I would call tempting for someone like Mr. C slash Bob to try to approach. It is something that as a form of currency or as a form of maybe even one-upping the entity, the full reasoning is unaware, but at the very least, the motivation to seek out pain and suffering is something we've already seen contextually with Bob. And to say that he would go to the extreme end of that, I think is reasonable enough. So Bob seeking out this Garmin Bosia is something that I can believe continues through. The with Garmin Mr. Bosia C. being emitted out of Sarah Palmer? Out of Sarah Palmer, which is what we discover. But at the end of the day, is just the larger route that Mr. C slash Bob is taking at this time without knowing it is Sarah Palmer. Because elsewise, he'd probably just skip right to the end. In this case, he's taking the very mythical steps of trying to find this Garmin Bosia. Okay. Which he's actively doing as he's moving around, but he's looking for the jackpot in this case. The mother of all Garmambosia. The mother of all Garmambosia, and ergo also kind of his mother, in right. a sense. <laughs> so seeking out this Garmambosia, he probably is enacting to either increase it, take it, and have it selfishly, Mr. C. However, also using the context of Firewalk with me, we're going to look at Cooper for a moment. So why would Cooper seek it out? I think it's in that Lancelot ideal of if there's a great negative force and you know of the great negative force going on that you do understand more of Jaude and probably have heard a few things while being in the Red Room enough that being that Lancelot self and trying to help out, he knows Laura Palmer is hurting. Cooper is Laura Palmer's guardian angel. The guardian angel imagery throughout Fire Walk With Me is seen time and time again. And the usage of it is seen time and time again. And when I first saw the last scene, that's very notable in Firewalk with me as she looks up at her guardian angel. At first I thought like Cooper was welcoming her in with a hand at the side just because he happens to be a resident. But no, from his actions and from literally being right there as we are seeing this guardian angel imagery. No, I think that that actually correlates. I find Dale Cooper to be Laura Palmer's guardian angel in this case, her Lancelot. So knowing that there could be something that he can try to actively do to try to act as this guardian angel and try to help because he knows there's trouble in the world and he wants to help be that guardian angel, he's going to try to do it. Was he aware of being her guardian angel before the ending of season two? Like, are you assuming in the 25 years that have transpired in our timeline... I don't know how aware he is. I, okay. Because I, I he said trying to be a good guardian angel. He's trying angel. to be a good guardian angel, but it can also be in the passive sense for like Dale Cooper being the ideal. I'm just saying, uh, is he conscious of it? I don't know if he's conscious of it. I don't know that. Do you think that this is also supported by My Life, My Tapes? Being that's the most direct Dale Cooper story we I have. think it's supported by the aspect of dualities, different forms, and ideas brought in more from the return as well as black and white lodges of things going like through these darker forms and lighter forms. The good Cooper is inside the lodge. I think it is more handled by the, those main points of source material more than Cooper's origin story. Which so I, do you, you don't think it contradicts though? I don't think it contradicts. So like it can't, you wouldn't say that you have to discount 
My Life, My Tapes. I don't think you have to tell My Life, My Tapes. I think that this is, as I was mentioning about evolution before, if Mr. C is an evolution of a dark Cooper existing for a while, the Cooper left alone to devices known as the good being mm. sorted through, this is his evolution of being that entity that is watchful, kind, and just trying to help out the world around him. Okay. So, and I think that that also is contextualized thanks to the time in Vegas in which everything that he does is in that positive affect in which he's positively affecting everyone in his life and is not going into any negative whims mm. at that time. So th that's where I'm taking those positive ends and where I'm really putting Dale Cooper in the idea of being that guardian okay. angel. So I'm, I'm, I think I'm with you. I don't agree with it completely right now, but mm -hmm. I understand the idea that Dale Cooper consciously or unconsciously is... Laura's symbolic guardian angel. Yes, and I think Lancelot Court, now that you told me about Lancelot, is fitting for him okay. to drop in. But Was he assigned to be an angel by some entity, or how does he become that? I think he becomes that from the idea that someone needs help. Okay. I think that when he knows and has the knowledge of it and needs to help someone, Dale Cooper has not acted in a way that he steps aside. He truly has grown to love Twin Peaks, and by extension, I think that Laura symbolizes Twin Peaks in multiple ways. In some ways, you could say if recognition, we live inside a dream, there's two people that I can think of being the dreamer. And one of those is Laura Palmer. So being that guardian angel, mm -hmm. recognizing the dreamer and seeing her, he is trying to act in a way that will aid her in her continued sweet dreams. Because at the end of the day, not only is it the reality for himself, this world, everyone around it, and by extension, himself, but also Dale Cooper is a person who helps that will put aside even his own desires and whims in order to help out people such as Audrey in that sort of like case of like sitting down with her and saying, let's get some burgers and some shakes. Just to clarify, Dale Cooper then would be the hero, not because it's his own dream, but because Laura Palmer as the dreamer would want a hero like Dale Cooper. I believe so, yes. Okay, now just double-checking, when you say Laura Palmer's the dreamer, is it a girl actually named Laura Palmer, or is Laura Palmer like a, a pseudonym she's going under? Potentially Much a Much like Carrie Page. Potentially just a, a pseudonym if she is the only dreamer. Are Carrie Page and Laura Palmer the same dreamer? I think that I may even go a step further in which like they might be a sleeping person beyond. So I am unsure. Okay. But mostly because there's one person that I think might be more apt to be referred to as the dreamer. Okay. I think Laura Palmer is a response to the dreamer because the frog moth. I, ne I never really thought about this at first, but contextualizing it in the idea that the frog moth crawls into Sarah Palmer's mouth, mm -hmm. frog of a plague, moth of a flame. That is what I wrote down. Frogs notable as things of plagues of deep darkness Moths attracted to a means of light. I've always thought Kermit was really bad vibes, you know, kind of an ominous figure. But not necessarily to the greatest end. And I mean, to me, a rat is like a plague animal. Are frogs really that associated with, with plagues? Yes, like literally the end of days uh, revelations, I believe that frogs are a use of symbology or at the very least mm. what modern media has associated with the symbology of a, like a sea I, of Again, frogs. I think of locusts. I think of, I mean... I'm a little, at, this point, I'm, at this point, it's a different doom and gloom of a different entity. Okay. And all sorts of things could fit in it. But in this case, if you were to put two insects together, like locusts and moths, it'd be hard to tell. Having something as <laughs> notable as a frog moth, I think it works well. Okay. But okay. 
in this case, crawls into we're presuming is Sarah, Sarah Palmer. Palmer's mouth. I think that that planted in is what's meant to facilitate as a seed to lead to the great Garmenbosia, something that in which an entity had decided to latch on to this girl as like a radio is played off in the background to lead to a great harvest of Garmenbosia mm. so that in response to this horrific evil that is about to occur, and seeing as the fireman is notable to act against those great evils, in response, sends Sarah Palmer into the world, probably with the one light that can exist. Mean Laura. That, yeah, uh, yes, Laura Palmer, thank you. Into it. So kind of like in that like horrible, horrifying negative context of the dark egg versus the light ball, which could be referred to as a light egg, the sort of, again, yin and yang areas of so, that. So Sarah Palmer is like Job if the god and devil both decided they're just going to lap up some pain and suffering? Yes. Okay. Yes, in this case... With that being said, with all the misfortunes Sarah Palmer is met with, I think it fits, but it also puts into the argument with the sleeping girl taking in the frog moth. Whether it is Sarah Palmer or a girl of a different name, could the girl, and by extension Sarah Palmer, be the dreamer? Mm. It's something where if that idealized end of the dream, everything turns into a nightmare. Man, the, the Dick Andy Lucy storyline was a weird part of that dream. I'm going to tell you what. <laughs> I don't know where that was coming from. <laughs> it's something that makes up for the world that is meant to be peaceful and what Sarah Palmer has to recognize as she sits around miserably smoking your cigarettes. Something that, like, there's beautiful things going outside of her own personal horizons as she is stuck inside of this place where she's trying to make the most out of things as she's constantly drugged so, by husband. So, so double-checking if we go by... So that's your number one guess. My number one guess is Sarah Palmer. Sarah Palmer or the girl and Sarah Palmer is just what the girl dreams of herself as. Okay, so my question is like, how do we have any idea of what she's like outside of the dream to make any of these assess assessments or uh, like assumptions? What is she like outside of the dream? Like, how do we know that she's like Sarah Palmer smoking away her days if that's in the dream itself? I'm using it as the idea if this girl is Sarah Palmer more than anything. I'm using timelines as well as the mythic senses of someone dreaming using the closed okay, eyes maybe physically. A, maybe a closer question is, is everything the dream is everything the dream yes i think okay. that i think the girl standing and kissing the boy in this very close shot and she goes to bed as a lullaby is sung as this creature is introduced into her mouth as her eyes are closed and everyone is put to sleep okay in response of it that's when the dream begins everyone is put to rest thanks to these so entities. you have nothing outside the dream though as a, as a junctioning point or as a center point for this theory. You only have things within the dream to interpret the dream. Itself. I only have the things that happened at the end of part eight to assess that it feels this is where the dream begins thanks to sleep and slumber okay. literally being interpreted using the odds and ends of these two entities, in this case, a see, great darkness, great light. See, this is where I, I struggle because I could see reasons why Sarah Palmer would want to escape into a dream based on everything we know about her life in the dream narrative. Yes. I just don't know what your evidence would be if you only have the dream to go by. How do you prove the reality outside the dream with only the dream? It's like trying to prove the supernatural with only the natural. I think that... Ye of little faith. I think it's that point where I have to look into those dual lenses and see the literal as well as the metaphorical as somewhat the same sight. Because thanks to the contents of part 18 how layered the dreams are or how far these entities go remains in this deep unknown. It is something where 
say, for example, the introduction of the Tremonts and the Shelfonts, which I believe are also very notable, and Laura Palmer's scream, or in this case, Carrie Page's scream, going out and causing reactions in a realm that seems less saturated in that soap opera-y, Twin Peaksian, or anything in Part 17. It seems less alive in this world than ever before when we're introduced to this layer above that Cooper travels to. Okay. So, it's something where the existence of Chalfonts and Tremons in a place sitting around where once people used to reside that apparently darker things happened, which I remember in the old RV park when I remember the next door neighbors switching out for when they were visiting the neighbors of Harold. It's where... These well, the RV trailers are they the same thing. I, I, don't I know mean. what you the fat I know trout. What you mean. The, the, the fat trout trailer. Fat park. trout trail park. Either way, they are these layered entities that keep reappearing around points right. of misfortune and likely a harvest of this Garmenbosia. Especially seeing the young Traymon boy hold on to cream corn physically. He doesn't like it though. He doesn't like it though. He specifically asked for there not to be any cream corn. In fact, actually, Donna gets yelled at a bit by the Traymons for having it, but still follows along with it each time. No, 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 no. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna challenge you here a little okay. bit. If the Shelfonts and Tremons want pain and suffering, why would they react so strongly against having cream corn on their plate? Is it both of the entities, both the Tremon boy as well as the uh, grandmother? Or From do they what both? I remember, it's the grandmother does all the speaking. I don't think the boy says anything. Yeah, he just teleports it away, and the grandmother explains he's a magician. Blah blah blah. But the grandma, the grandmother says we specifically asked for no cream corn. Like, yes. It seemed pretty declarative. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just simply entities that are watching over that are unassociated with or something in which you can s- separate certain entities in the Red Room, but it still is an association with cream corn yeah, that they have to not follow along it. with it. Not I, wanting it, but they're always around it. Are they? Were they living right next door to Laura Palmer when she was being I mean, abused by her this, father? At this point, they lived inside the household afterwards, in which it's after the result that we see these falsehoods or the places completely disappear, I, including Teresa Banks when it disappears because they're not there whatsoever after Teresa Banks is gone. But it's notable that they used to live there nonetheless. Sure, but that doesn't necessarily mean they were drawn to her pain and suffering, more that they were just in the location due to other supernatural elements that were there. I we think- don't know their motives by the end of the day. You could argue that the son, grandson has a different motive than the grandmother. Maybe he wants the cream corn and she doesn't, but that doesn't necessarily assert anything about the ending of Part 18 because it's the Tremont Chalfont name in general they just with so- a Mrs. attached. But they just so happen to be around places where pain and suffering and cream corn happens to be. I still think that even though they may not like it, they still can be associated Okay, but the first situation that happened was there by Harold. Do you think Harold is as great of a source of pain and suffering as other people in Twin Peaks? Not really. I think it's one of the lower ones. (laughs) No, I'm going to poke holes in this a little bit because if your main thing is that they live near sources of Garmambosia, you've got one instance with Teresa Teresa Banks that, yes, you're right. Yes. But when we first see them in season two, Mm -hmm. if we're going to say this is consistent throughout the series, they're living in the area near Harold. They were just on the list that Laura would visit but it doesn't seem like they were especially close to Laura's house or especially close to Laura herself. They weren't close to other people who were suffering. I would want to be near Benjamin Horn. I would be wanting to be near the Renaults. I'd be wanting to be near a lot of people who are going through much more suffering than Harold. Don't get me wrong. Harold's got struggles. Harold's got difficult things. Maybe the general neighborhood's got things, but I just don't think there's enough evidence to say that they were going for Garmin Bosia in season two. Well, we can associate, which I have compared them to owls in the past before, that 
Harold has been watched over by entities and has also passed out from result, has been kept basically captive by what seems to be these mystical forces and been stuck for so long. It is something in which if you are caught to a point that there's only one positive in your life and when that she has to be constantly absent, we've only seen scenes where she has been around and after she dies and after even like any other alternatives are broken, Harold ends up on a noose with okay. everything okay. broken around I'll play, him. I'll play into your hand a little bit and give you potentially an argument I could use for you is that even though Harold himself may not be the source of all the Garmambosia, this is one of the places that Laura visits the most is Harold's place. It's the place where Laura confides maybe more than anywhere else, other than maybe Jacoby's. Yes. And this is where the diary is located. Mm -hmm. And it's also the place in which we see the Bob form of Laura appear. Mm -hmm. So if you want to do some argument for that, maybe that's an argument in favor of it. Mm -hmm. I'm still not convinced, <laughs> but I think that maybe there's some circumstantial elements with Laura visiting Harold that it is still in the trajectory Yes, which, going back to say, at the end of the day, Shelfonts and Tremonts being inside of places that tend to follow misery, but also replace those either places or nearby places where they just so happen to be. By name-dropping those, the foundation of this being a complete reality breaks down, where if someone makes the argument of saying, like, it is no longer inside the dream completely, uh, that's the one of the more suspicious points, followed up with also the scream from Laura. Another piece of evidence I would argue that it is still within the dream world is that when they go to the town of Twin Peaks, uh, they aren't suddenly finding out there's no such thing as a town of Twin Peaks. And alongside that <laughs> note, when they do drive, it says the double R at the diner. Yes. If this was meant to be interpreted as the real world, would it still be the double R diner? It would know because the real life Tweeds Cafe does not say double R on it. I want to note though, this is where I think it's not 100% perfect. Uh, if you look at the street signs in the dark, it still does say North Bend Way. I don't know if North Bend Way exists in the town of Twin Peaks <laughs> or if it exists, I don't know, in the real town of North Bend. And that's fair. Whether or not it is the real world in the text of the fiction or if it is the real world associated with our world being the real world. I would world. just say there's evidence to support that part 18's world, despite all the weird stuff, is still part of the Twin Peaks reality on some level because it's the double R. Yes. If it wasn't the double R, if it was just Tweed's Cafe, no double R included, then I'd be like, okay, that's evidence something's different. <laughs> it's the fact that that was kept. I think that's a really, because we don't visit a lot of places when Dale Cooper or Richard, whatever you want to say, goes with Carrie. Mm -hmm. the, one of the few things we pass by though is the double R. It is. So I think that that's evidence to the, you know, a certain angle. I understand where the evidence can come from and I'll see the arguments. I think that the ending points are probably the most but you're, but you're still but in agreement with me, though, that this is not the real world. This is not the real world. I do agree. I think that at the end of the day, Cooper is brought into a world that happens to have the last remnant of Laura Palmer. I think everything that's happening with Laura Palmer up to the end, the quickly moving entity going down the stairs, quickly probably trying to either A, enact the final phase of the plan, or B, uh, try to outbeat Cooper for what's about to happen. Yeah. I think that this is where the Garmin Bosey is being consumed. I think that this is where the currency is fully being cashed in. Okay. I think that this is a point where since Laura Palmer is disappearing and Cooper is acting as a guardian angel trying to save her in multiple instances, not only in the Red Room is she now gone and absent, in which that's more so in that realm of Twin Peaks. Not only in the past is he able to not try to capture Laura and bring him about, but the last remnant of Laura Palmer being out there, Carrie Page, notably, we were missing a page from the diary, even after all diary pages have gone through, Carrie Page, ha, Page, ha, ha. Carries it. Carries it, absolutely. 
He gets to Carrie Page and as a last-ditch effort tries to bring Laura Palmer back in mm-hmm. and is convinced, is like trying to push and present it and uh, is able to try to transport her there, uh, brings her all the way there. I think he's doing everything in his power to get Laura Palmer back while everything is acting against to cash it out. And I think, if I will, for the ending, where they are no longer there, where... There seems to be new people, and he brought literally the last piece to literally scream off into the distance. I think this ending symbolizes the desire for a Lancelot ideal, the desire to try to fix things, the desire to stop a horrible outcome leading to inevitability, not only of Laura Palmer disappearing and everything, uh, quote-unquote, Twin Peaks or this uh, end of this Garmambosia being consumed, but... Literally, Dale Cooper delivers the last piece on a silver platter straight to where the entity is residing. Unbeknownst to him, because I don't think that he, like, I, I think he think, think, I think he, I think he thinks he's putting a bandage or he's trying to go through the healing act of reintroducing something that was beautiful and try to bring Laura Palmer back to something of a home. Being overlooked of this idea of being that thing that has to fix things. And instead, does the worst possible outcome, bringing her back to a place of pain, and ergo, leading Laura Palmer to a final death, where every piece of her yeah. is consumed. So I have, a, I have a lot of things and a lot of questions. Uh, but I want to preface this first with a quote. Um, so Mark Frost, he did an interview with Salon, and he was asked about the meaning of this episode. And of course, you know, David Lynch would have probably <laughs> just said, like, he would have given nothing, right? Mark Frost gave something. And whether he should have, whether he shouldn't have, what you think of it, what you don't think of it, mm-hmm. up to your opinion. You've said death of the author for so long. Hi. Do you care what Mark Frost said? I care as a means of it insight, but I do feel very well inside my rating nonetheless. If that... he says something that confirms what you're saying, how much more confident would you be? I don't know. Flip uh... side, if he says something that disproves what you're saying, would it destroy your theory? Maybe. It might destroy my theory mm. completely for the greater odds and ends of the audience. Or those beliefs may be something in which I'll be able to interpret enough as that sure. death of the author. But as far as the text of Fire Walk the Meek is concerned, as well as the ending to this, I feel fairly confident in this reading. Okay. So I'm just going to read this, and I, and, I, and I give this emphasis just to get your mindset before you hear it, just to kind of know where you're coming from, and that I don't know how many times either of the creators have talked about the ending. This mm-hmm. is one of the only ones I'm aware of. So, quote, The actions that Cooper takes have consequences and they're unforeseen and unanticipated. And they open the door to all other sorts of strange and perhaps enigmatic things taking place. End quote. That's it. Cooper does all consequential actions that he may may not be aware of and it can lead into mysteries. I think I can agree I don't think it goes against your view at all. I, I will say this is a good juncture to point out a different interpretation of the ending that I think you and I are both disagreeing with. Mm -hmm. Um, There are some people who interpret the ending as a happy one. Um, There are people who interpret the ending as either happy fully or bittersweet, but there is a positive element to it, a victory to it. And again, I am not of this opinion. I don't think I'm the best spokesperson for it, but I will try to articulate my understanding of that viewpoint. So that would be, I believe, the idea that Dale Cooper, alongside Philip Jeffries, the fireman, and Major Briggs, 
to some degree of collaboration. We're trying to take Judy down, Bob down by association, Mr. C and perhaps Sarah Palmer, all these negative forces and Mm -hmm. their plan to, you know, chess battle. If you want to think of it that way was to result in the defeat of those entities. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems like Mr. C got defeated by this. It seems like Bob got defeated by this through Freddy. That's two so far. And if we look at the potential ending then with Judy and Sarah Palmer, there's that image then of Sarah Palmer attacking the photograph. You could argue that that is, you know, Sarah Palmer in some way cursing the situation or lashing out or attacking. But you could also see this is the throes of someone in defeat, that she is agonized over her loss, that she's like, dang it, I was like, oh God, I want to get at this, but I can't. She literally is powerless to do anything about it. She's already lost the game. She's in And at the end, when, when, when Sarah Palmer shouts out Laura, the result is the lights go out. And that could be a sign that lights are out for Judy, lights are out for Sarah Palmer. She has been defeated. Now, there's probably a lot more nuance that other people can bring to the table if they are adherents to this theory. I don't think it's the majority. It could be wrong. But I think there are some people who do read the ending as a win. That Dale Cooper and the firemen and, and company, they ultimately did it. They saved Laura Palmer and they defeated the evil. I don't believe this because everything about the mood and tone to me of part 18 screams that this is bad. And Mm -hmm. those final moments are so eerie and unsettling and uncomfortable from Mm -hmm. the music, from the performances, from the lingering shot with the credits, even from the sense that the Lynch Frost Productions logo at the end is silent. Yeah, which it has not been up to this point. It's always been loud electricity. That to me is ominous. Lights have gone out, like literally as a circuit breaker. The lights are done. And electricity can sometimes be a negative force, but as Hawk is very clear to say, it's just power. It could be good or bad. Mm -hmm. The fact that everything is drained, all of the energy is gone, and we're left with like the lingering image of Deal Cooper's confused, potentially horrified face of whatever Laura whispered. Um, excuse me, that doesn't seem good to me. I just want to, you know, highlight the idea though that even with this ending, there are people who see it as a victory. Mm-hmm. They do see it as a positive thing. Do you think your theories can work with a victory? Or are you pretty much saying like you can't believe in the victory idea? Seeing <laughs> as I feel that the Garmin Bosio was fully accepted, unless like you really don't like Laura Palmer, uh, I you, don't see that. So at first, early into our podcast, <laughs> think she was an Eldritch Horror, so. No, instead, uh, I now believe in the larger Eldritch Horror that lurks around her more than anything. I believe more in the experiment. One theory I remember seeing, and I can't remember if it was in if it was in like a Reddit post or if it was in Laura's Ghost, was that idea that what Laura whispered to Cooper in the original series was "My father killed me," whereas in the return, it's "You killed me." Do you like that idea or no? I think that it is something that if we are to look into Dale Cooper's face, and in a sense of judgment on someone who just tried to help, but to the worst avail in which Laura Palmer has met with the final death. I do think that that is at the very least interesting and compelling. And I do think that as far as you can see from my reasoning on why that would bode well for what I already view as Mm. the ending. Okay. It's not to say that it is the case. So just to get a sense of like, what's the point of this? Well, let's, let's say your theory is right. Let's say your interpretation's right. My understanding of what you're saying is that the frog moth entering the girl is the seed for the Garmin Bosia that would later 
flourish more in the return with Sarah Palmer's own suffering and the malaise that she's in. But then ultimately like a moth drawn to the flame, the real piece de resistance is that Dale Cooper is going to serve on a silver platter, the ending of Laura Palmer, the final death yes. uh, by bringing her to this place of torture and trauma. And that when the lights go out, that is the entity of the experiment or Judy feasting on that darkness, feasting on that evil that was in the home of, Alice Tremond, Unseen. Notably, the scope of the camera lens is focusing upstairs, notably where Laura's room was. Okay, so, so that's your interpretation. Yes. Am I correct? Okay, my, my question is, so what? It's something that makes it known that despite the actions that go through, I have a, some might call it cruel, but an absolute fascination with bad endings. Where, not like the bad, because I don't, I think that this is a pretty solid ending, but bad in the respects that, it can be too late. The hero does not make it to the goal, or even the hero's attempts towards the goals end up leading to horrible outcomes. I think having media that is willing to have those points and explore those points not only are a rarity, but I find to value more if it is done in a respect that I can chew on, see, and am able to read and interpret. Mm. And from my exhaustive amounts of sort of like connection building with a lot of things like Fire Walk With Me, I do think that this is a good example of the ending coming through that this dream has ended, but in the worst way. Let's say that's all true. Again, what was the point then in all of Twin Peaks for the things that don't involve Laura and Sarah Palmer and Dale Cooper? Like, what do you do with plot lines? I made the joke earlier about if, if you know, she's the dreamer, what's going on with Dick Tremaine. But in all actuality, what does that have to do with anything? Either the, the offbeat plots in season two or in the return plot threads that don't have to do with this main plot. Like, what's Dougie's deal with that? Um, <laughs> what what are the meanings and importances of these dreams that don't seem directly relevant to the Garmambosia seed plot. I think the biggest part through Twin Peaks is that there's all sorts of external affairs while Laura Palmer's image constantly flashes up. And many lives are impacted by Laura Palmer. It's where the lives and existences mm. of other individuals that, as far as their reality is concerned for the dream, things many times over seem to come out to the positive. Things seem to look up. Things seem to be great. Whilst in the background, Sarah Palmer constantly loses. There are events that go through where the world is wonderful or the world can be overcome or there is a villain that you can defeat in the background. Meanwhile, Sarah Palmer still suffers to the point that things become too far too late where the only associated person that she was even close to at one point was Dr. Jacoby. And I mean, close as in the literal vicinity yeah. of him. And when Hawk tries to reach out, it is where I think that she is too far gone that she's not going to accept help because what's the point now? She is literally sitting in the home of ultimate suffering. I think that this theory that you're proposing, a lot of the ideas I haven't heard as much about. They, they are relatively new to me. I don't hear a lot of people saying Sarah Palmer is the dreamer. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of your ideas, they, they have logic to them, they, they fit. I want to say that while I think that that is interesting in that sense, I'm going to offer the counterpoint in the sense of, I feel that a lot of times in the return, instead of telling a deeply meaningful or compelling story about people, 
Instead, David Lynch and Mark Frost chose to make a story about time travel, multiple dimensions, aliens, and all of these things that lead to this world that barely even is coherent, barely even makes any sense, barely even matters. And I'm looking at it and it's like, yeah, you can do all these things to represent the ultimate suffering and make it creamed corn and all that stuff. But what happened to it being a story about real people? And I'm not against meta stories. There are series Mm -hmm. that you and I both know where I like when things get meta and things start to push the boundaries. Mm -hmm. But I think with Twin Peaks in this particular case, in this particular execution, I find that if we take this Judy narrative and you take the dreamer narrative, I look at all of this and I'm like, so wait, all the stuff in the secret diary of Laura Palmer. What is that? That's a fragment of a dream of a different person of a nightmare. And I'm just like, I don't, I don't care. Like I don't, that doesn't mean anything to me. And it's instead of talking about Sarah Palmer's trauma and suffering as a real person, Mm. a real, like what happens to a mother who blames herself for not only the death of her daughter, but what happened to her daughter before her death, what happened to her husband, all of that happening under her own roof. What happens to Sarah Palmer when she doesn't have a network? What happens when a town doesn't help people who've struggled and who've been victims? What Mm. do you do with that? And I'm like, whoa, that's a really interesting question. That's a really nuanced and interesting dynamic. I want to hear that story. I want to know what happens to Sarah Palmer. Mm -hmm. And the answer is she got she got a frog moth in her mouth and she turned into the demon, the evil, and she's the jumping man. And she's over here and she's smashing the photo and she's messing with the timeline. And I'm like, <laughs> this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And it's not your fault. I'm not mad at you, professor. I understand. But this is how I feel when I hear this. It's like, maybe that is the case. Why? Why I- is that the story that was chosen to be told instead of something about emotions and people? It's this, it it becomes so supernatural that it passes the threshold. The original show for me, and even Fire Walk With Me, I think always had the supernatural in a way that enhanced the real. And now I look at it and it's like you turn Sarah Palmer into a monster. Okay. I take Sarah Palmer in the respects of Frankenstein's monster, where... It's not, it's more so in not the respect of a monster that comes out of nothing as the monster that is meant to be like this arcing like evil that must be defeated, but more so something that was created by external affairs outside of her own control and something that she has to live with to the point of a deep misery and melancholy almost. And that's the way I do view Sarah Palmer. I think the actions or the most notably inactions of a town in which she is she is the only one that doesn't get a sense of resolution or a sense of aid and when it's too late there's nothing to really mm. get to her i think is compelling from what i'm reading from the narrative not to mention the characters that are around i was quickly throwing that audrey also didn't get resolution audrey didn't get resolution she is stuck inside of her own mind either in a coma or not inside of. i think any theory about twin peaks the return has to account for audrey absolutely that's an anomaly absolutely audrey is a strange anomaly but i think that audrey is used as an entity to show the flippant boundaries of the dream and how really deep that goes this is just to quote you exactly what you just said audrey is used Yes. To show this. Yes. That's my problem. No, I understand. That is my problem. (laughs) And I will get to the problem, I promise. (laughs) It's that she becomes a plot device rather than a person. Maybe it's from my own mindset that looks into fictions as 
a form of a dream, as a form of something of a reality that is formed by the sense of imagination that things are already in their falsehoods. But what matters in, and I think following Cooper so much inside of the return, shows that everything is real in the dream for everyone within the dream. These people are n no less false than any other points of fiction because mm -hmm. their world, as far as they are concerned, are as real to them as anything else. So that's where I find it more so of a venue more than anything. But by that extension, I will also invite that The Return is so far different from the original Twin Peaks, mostly because the original Twin Peaks was a soap opera-based story based on those characters. And Twin Peaks The Return is an exploration of the dynamics and the things that are at play that is simply a puzzle boss a puzzle box, or boss, if you want to put it in some context. Bob is the final boss, yeah. It's a puzzle for you to put together, for you to weave and come, I believe, to your own personal conclusions. It's an interactive point of media where, yes, one can consider a point of heavy lifting, but some of those weights will become more easier to some than others, and some will be simply frustrated. I know I've never solved a Rubik's Cube, but I could probably learn how to do it, but those puzzles frustrate me, and I put them aside. This one doesn't. If I haven't made it clear before, maybe maybe I said something different in the previous podcast, but at least in this moment right now, I am on team. We are the dreamer does not mean that there is a one person dreaming the whole story. Yes. Uh, I am on the team that it is more the idea that the world we live in is imaginary, is fictional. It could be a meta commentary that they are living in the show Twin Peaks, but I don't think there actually is a dreamer personally. I don't think that there is a specific character that it's meant to be their dream. The closest I would say if I had to pick someone, it is David Lynch and Mark Frost's dream that we are participating in, or it's mm -hmm. the audience's dream that we are concocting Twin Peaks with the creators. Or Twin Peaks is the dream of our world, of, of real people making the world. It's Harley Payton's dream. It's Sabrina Sutherland's dream. Mm -hmm. It's all of our shared collective dream. But I don't think there's like, oh, this person... It's all their imagination. I don't think that's what's going on. No, I think that there's an argument for the audience stream or even by the context of like the type of media or the media that gets circulated, the American dream, yes. where during the time and age of Twin Peaks of having something so like beautiful and something so like things are happening around here and things are up to the ante, but still the heroes are going to try to save the day with some weird things going on in the background and even like some corruption that leads things into nightmares ends. I think that you could argue that into the original Twin Peaks. And by extension, what Twin Peaks The Return has to reflect then is not the sensibilities of the past dream, but more so the dream of the present, in which I think media has changed and evolved over time, in which we do have some of these more so darker storylines. And maybe there is something that tries to conflict and corrupt to the point that Twin Peaks just does no longer fits into and is recontextualized into the text. But... Still, I find that viewing to be something that doesn't fit fully to myself, though I do see a potential duality reading from it, simply because of the nightmare's end, if you will. Mm. What does it mean when the dream breaks or the dream ends, and what does that mean by extension what Laura Palmer is for the viewing audience, David Lynch or Mark Frost? Said it at the very beginning of this podcast ages ago. For me, there's this idea that it's not inherently good to have a answer to a mystery. It's not inherently good to have a mystery that has no answer. It's whether the answer is sufficiently interesting or better than the mystery. Is it going to be quote unquote worth it? When I think about season two, 
David Lynch did not want to reveal the killer for Laura Palmer. I think that ended up that he was wrong in the sense that regardless of what could have been, if the answer hadn't been revealed, it's the revelation that Leland was the killer that gave us one of the best episodes of Twin Peaks, mm-hmm. my opinion. Mm-hmm. It gave us Secret Diary of Laura Palmer, which is one of my favorite pieces of Twin Peaks media, and it mm-hmm. meant a lot to a lot of people. And it gave us Fire Walk With Me. And I think so much of my appreciation for Twin Peaks does settle around the idea that it was willing to be this story about Laura Palmer. And I think Laura Palmer's story is hard to tell with the mystery of her killer never being revealed. Mm-hmm. I think it I think it completely changes everything. I think it was an answer that was good enough to be better than the mystery, personally. And the fact that if, you know, the idea is that people dropped off after the mystery was solved. Hot take, I don't think the reason people stopped watching Twin Peaks is because, oh, I guess we know the killer, now we can stop watching. I think it's because the writers and showrunners did not give us something else immediately that everyone loved. Mm-hmm. I think it isn't the fault of the answer. I think it's the fault of the direction right away after the answer. That being said, I like season two. That being said, it did work for me. <laughs> that being said, the timeline kept jumping all over the place and you could almost argue there might've been a studio influence that may have been negative. There just wasn't as clear of a focus or a drive the way that the who killed Laura Palmer mystery had been. There was nothing set up to supplant it, to mm. go again. Now, could there have been? Yes, there could have been things. I think actually there's a lot of plot lines that aren't involving Laura's mystery that hooked me. For example, I haven't heard anyone ever say a negative thing about the Audrey plot line where she goes into one-eyed Jacks and she's in danger. That is an interesting storyline. Almost everyone agrees it's interesting. Mm-hmm. And that's not Laura Palmer. That's not even Dale Cooper. <laughs> There's a sense of Dale Cooper might be the one to save her or not. Mm-hmm. But you can tell great Twin Peaks stories that don't involve the killer of Laura Palmer. Mm-hmm. That's what was needed. And it just didn't happen the way that a lot of people wanted. That's mm-hmm. not because, oh, it's proof that the show got canceled because they revealed the killer. I don't think so. Yeah. I think the revealing killer is one of the best things that ever happened to Twin Peaks. I say all of this to say that when it comes to mysteries and answers, it's got to be an answer that I find fulfilling, I find satisfying, I find enhances the work. And when it comes to Twin Peaks, the return, I'm in a tough spot because at gut level, I don't feel like there's an answer provided. I think he flat out, David Lynch made a thing on purpose that you can't ever figure out fully because there's too many contradictions. There's too many weird things in the timeline. There's too many forces you can never quite figure out. So it's an endless puzzle on purpose. That's my current reading of it. Mm-hmm. I think any theory, even the best theory, even the theory you're putting forward, there's enough things that work outside of it where it's like, okay, cool. I hear what you're saying. Okay, but what about this? What about that? And you could do this forever. And maybe mm-hmm. that's the goal and something that people appreciate about it. Mm-hmm. I'm left un- uncertain though because... I don't even have a compelling hook of a mystery. I don't have anything I'm that interested in the return to really compel me that way. Mm-hmm. And then if we take the answers, let's say your theory's right. Or let's say other theories that Cooper's the dreamer or Audrey's the dreamer. It doesn't matter. Any of these, any of these answers, mm-hmm. are they are they good? They don't do it for me. Mm-hmm. They don't really do it for me. All of these things, it's got to be a worthwhile answer. And... It reminds me of Citizen Kane, which I feel like the <laughs> ultimate like film bro here by saying that. But but no joke, if you haven't seen Citizen Kane, I think it's actually a good movie. It's one of those things that gets overhyped because <laughs> no, because people, I know, I know. People take it for granted it's a good movie and it always annoys me when someone's like obviously it's good. No, no, no. I actually think it's a pretty good movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to say this gonna, is your least host, hottest take I've ever yeah, heard. I'm not going to spoil the answer to this if you haven't seen the movie and don't know, but at the very beginning the main character dies, the main focus character of the story. Mm-hmm. They're going to investigate for the rest of the movie. And the final word that he says before he dies is Rosebud. And part of the attention of the movie is going to be 
what's Rosebud? Who's Rosebud? Is that a lover? Is it a place? What is it? And at the end, we get an answer. I'll say that. We get an answer. It was David Lynch. My point, though, is, is that very few people would look back and say, yeah, Citizen Kane could have been a really good movie. It's a shame that they had to give the answer of what Rosebud was. Mm-hmm. Very few people say that. You know mm-hmm. one of the people who does, though? Orson Welles. In the <laughs> sense that he, it's his least favorite thing about the movie. He dislikes that. Now, I haven't ever found anything saying he, like, didn't want to say anything. But I have found quotes where he basically says, like, yeah, it's tacky. It's the worst part of the movie. And I'm over here disagreeing. Because if you know what Rosebud is, what I would say is that it gives a lot of character development and depth to a character in an interesting way. Mm-hmm. I think it gives you a fuller picture of the character than if you didn't ever have an answer. Mm-hmm. My point, my TLDR of my long-winded rant is, I think if your answer really brings depth and nuance and, and all these things to dive into, it can be excellent to reveal an answer. Giving us a meaningless endless series of mysteries that have no clear solution. It's all supposition where the best we can do is interpret things with alternate realities and dream worlds. It just doesn't interest me. And that's where I struggle with Twin Peaks, the return. Whereas a lot of other shows I could get into, Mm -hmm. it feels like the, even from the onset, it's goals are adverse to me as someone who loves to interpret Twin Peaks psychologically as someone who loves to interpret Twin Peaks personally and internally. Rosebud. (laughs) At this point, listener, you should take a stretch break. Stay hydrated. If you've been with us and you have been sitting immobile, just captivated and complete and total enrapturement of our, enrapturement's a word, enrapturement of our thoughts and you were working out and you stopped working out. You were going down a slide and you stopped going down the slide midway and there's, an, <laughs> there's a line behind you wanting to go down the slide. You should, you should finish your slide. You should just take a drink of water. This you, shows two like inevitable outcomes of the mind of when it's a grown adult <laughs> sitting on the slide waiting. Or if it's for some reason, like this child has gotten the hand on an iPod or something and is like listening in. There's a child. This is not the appropriate or it's place a grown, to be. It's a grown adult on a slide or a child doing a workout. <laughs> you don't, don't pigeonhole our listener. Although our podcast is not for children, but you know, don't pigeonhole our listener. <laughs> Point is, if you need to take a break, we're going to do a little, little, little bit of an intermission here. Uh, thank you very much for following us so far. If you have any thoughts on anything we've talked about so far, you can email us at snakeeyedreams at gmail.com. Tweet at us at snakeeyedreams1. That's the numeral one, as in one slide, you're going down. Um, or you can comment on our YouTube upload of this very podcast. If you're not there, you can just hop, skip a doodle over there and type click, clack, moo a message for us. <laughs> We are interested in receiving, potentially from you, some future fuel, if you will. You can energize us. You could be the energizer battery in our hearts, Mm -hmm. the energizer bunny battery in our hearts. Upcoming, at some point, we're going to do a look back episode, probably on the return, special features of the return, as well as the final dossier. Mm -hmm. And we would love to hear your questions for us, or questions about the show in general, your theories on the return. Your hot takes. Your hot takes. Or things we miss, like details that we haven't talked about yet that you think would be interesting. And again, you can email them, tweet them, or comment them on YouTube. Uh, if you want to be anonymous, just say, don't say my name. Mm-hmm. Or, or if you want to have a certain name, say it. Cool. The more we can add to a discussion, the more that it goes beyond us, I think that that's a lot of, a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of fun. Absolutely. That being said, now that you've stretched your limbs, you've finished your workout, you've gone down that slide... 
got some odds and ends to talk about here. Some last, last little things. So there's one song featured here. It's Julie Cruz performing The World Spins. Interesting little note about this particular version is that the song we hear at the Roadhouse is only like the second half. We don't hear the first half. Mm-hmm. When we go through the lyrics, I'm going to give you all of it because it's the whole song. Yay. And David Lynch wrote the lyrics for this. This is a song that obviously has connections and roots before the return. Thanks, Dave. In the original Twin Peaks. Uh, I'm going to start, though, with the stuff that is said in the version we get, and then we'll just add on the stuff that wasn't said. Farewell. So what we get is, Haley's comets come and gone. The things I touch are made of stone falling through this night alone. It seems like everything's going cold. It seems like the great events have passed. It seems like everything that you've waited and expected for is now gone. Love, don't go away. Come back this way. Come back and stay forever and ever. The world spins. What do you know? Another lyric about longing. Now notice this one ends with the world spins. The first verse ends with please stay. It's the world spins version that's been given, not the please stay version. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can read into that. Maybe you won't. You didn't say anything. So Uh, so you're not going to. (laughs) The world spins. It's something that things will keep on moving and continuing, but making the world being the more context that is focused on in this case uh, might be just recognizing that even the world will go on despite how cold it may feel. When the song originally played in Twin Peaks, that was, I think Donna and James are there, right? Am I I mistaken in my memory? Uh, I think that's like... It was Roadhouse, right? uh, Was it Roadhouse? I think it was Roadhouse. I'm trying to remember. So anyway, that was after Laura Palmer died. And that's Mm -hmm. the main thing I think would be about the world continuing on after a horrible tragedy a coldness mm-hmm. how do you interpret it now in regards to this it was at the end of part 17 i think the world continues on in its coldness just des- desiring a sense of longing if you will okay in this case the world being in the respects of a dreamer wanting something more and warm okay. and good to them it's the context of the this person who's now listening with a frog mouth inside their mouth as opposed to <laughs> the people that exist in hard the to dream. sing along with it when you have a frog mouth. <laughs> So these are the lyrics that were not in the version in the return, but are in the original full length version. And they're at the beginning. We skipped ahead to the end. Moving near the edge at night, dust is dancing in the space. A dog and bird are far away. The sun comes up and down each day. Light and shadow change the walls. I think it's just acknowledging the environments and things that will be associated with positive things while it's also acknowledging that there's going to be flashes and changes in the world around them. Jerry Horn is a very strange entity in the return, and we get closure on Jerry's story in closure? part 17. But it's something that to me feels completely out of like it's not related to anything else happening. And if I were to try to argue that 17 and 18 are built on purpose, I look at the fact that Ben got the call about Jerry in part 17, and I'm like, what does this have to do with anything? Because the entire rest of the part all fits into the main storyline except for this. Why is it in part 17? I personally think there's no reason. I personally think this is just what happened. I think that's where they slotted it for the time. I think that it's something to be tragic against Dick Horn in the respects that he, like Jerry, witnessed the grandson of Benjamin Horn and by extension, his nephew, completely be murdered and completely be evaporated from the world, looked onto it and instead was so over encumbered by his own self, his Mm -hmm. own like decisions and choices that all he can think of is he is the murderer and that his binoculars, actually, I don't even think he said that he killed him. He said his binoculars yes. killed him. That he's like so disassociated that he's willing to believe that this item 
is the thing that killed him. To be fair, in the world of Twin Peaks, that's always possible. That's always Green gloves can shatter entities like Bob. So. That's possible, but I do think it shows a bit of tragedy even further on Dickhorn's character, though admittedly he is like a darkest black on the actions that he's done. It still shows that even at the end of the day, his own family not only doesn't recognize him, but is so caught up with themselves that it's still overshadowed. I I, I think the person matters. Yeah, in this case. I think it, that's reading a lot into it. I, I think it's mostly for comedy, but I will say the main effect it gives for me is that it really puts the final nail in the coffin that time and space are basically meaningless in the return. Mm-hmm. Because when you look at what is going on, it makes no sense in the kind of way that has to be almost on purpose. Mm-hmm. So... Jerry is in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And if we look at Twin Peaks being the location where North Bend is in our world, because that's obviously where a lot of the Twin Peaks sites are. If North Bend is Twin Peaks and you were to go and you were to measure out how many miles is it from North Bend in real life which, mind to you, Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Which, mind you, you sent me this before. And yes. this is just on the roads. He took a shortcut through the woods. But on the roads, if you were to take a path, yeah. still if, plenty of distance. If you, were, if you were just measuring miles... It is 847 miles away. And I would walk 840 miles, so... (laughs) If you were driving, that would be a 12 and a half hour drive. If you were walking, it's a little bit longer. So if you were walking, and let's say an average person walking like 15 to 20 minutes per one mile. So it takes you about 15 to 20 minutes to walk a mile, if that's your constant speed, times 847 miles, that is 211 to 282 hours of constant walking. So to give you a context, if you were to not sleep, not rest, not have to ever detour from your path, you beeline it completely at a constant unerring rate, it would take you about a week of walking without ever resting, sleeping, doing anything else. Man, it's so unfortunate for Jerry Horn that the only snacks he carried on him was more mushrooms. Now, Jerry, you know, is obviously a man in great physical shape. You look at Jerry, and you're like, this is a man who could walk across the country. Sure. He is in his this prime of, you- pig of a man. He's in his prime health completely. So point is, I, this is obviously extreme. You don't just pick Jackson Hole, Wyoming, unless you want to make a point, either for humor, because it's funny he got that far. Yes. Or the implications that there is no sense of time and distance. Because we see Jerry talk to Ben in the beginning of the return, mm-hmm. right? Like part one or two. Mm-hmm. Meaning that from the from the beginning of the return to the end of the return, however you want to measure Ben Horn's role in these events, somehow Jerry Horn managed to go. 847 miles on foot that direction. At best, that'd be a week of constant walking, but that's obviously not happening. If he walked half the time, it's two weeks. I don't even think he took, it took him longer than that if it was real, right? So how many weeks has it been since Ben has seen Jerry? Because here's the problem, right? I don't know about you, but if if Ben is, you know, a reformed guy and Jerry has family, if someone's been gone for more than two weeks, I would hope there's a search party. Well, we see- I would hope there's someone looking. I would hope your answer to the phone call wouldn't be, oh, Jerry, what's he doing? Did he commit any crimes? It'd be <laughs> like, oh my God, Jerry, is he all right? I understand Ben is not the most emotional guy, but the reaction he gives sounds like someone who's been gone for a day. 
It doesn't sound like the reaction for someone who's been gone for a month. Mind you, throughout this series of Twin Peaks, Jerry was the one who always traveled. He was known for a sense of travel where he would just go off to a distance for quite some time. To say that when their like lives divulged, where Jerry's still okay with darker aspects, while Ben Ben is like sort of manning is like, let me focus on my work here. To say that Jerry would disappear for an amount of time is very... I, I would say wouldn't be in the capacity that would be outside of Ben's belief. Now... I think the biggest importance that this does, and I'm just realizing it now, is to put a location to where Jerry is at, or at the extremity of the location, show it's in, even in a different state, to show it's not just like across a little bit of a path. Because coordinates, we know the correct coordinates lead to Twin Peaks. Yep. However, the two coordinates that were false are all the way down here. It's to show, if I'm not mistaken, these are the same coordinates to Twin Peaks that it was... Judy that gave forward. Ergo confirming. You mean, you mean Diane? Diane, sorry. You said Judy, so. Sorry. <laughs> different so, entity entirely. Different here. entity entirely. But Diane is the one that gave the coordinates because yeah. those are the ones that match up to Twin Peaks and not in Wyoming. So, yes, yes. so yeah, I think that that just answers the mystery thanks to, by extension, well, Jerry Horn. But then it opens up another can of worms though of like time it takes to drive to places and travel. Like it's a 12 hour drive from Twin Peaks. I mean, it's possible. It's just kind of weird that like, I guess you would have to say that if it was in Wyoming, Mr. C had the thing with Richard and then drove 12 hours to the town of Twin Peaks and nothing happened in between because it, like from, from watching it as a show, it's like the next thing that happens with Mr. C. Like, yeah, it's dark and then it's light the next time. So okay. say to say that like the night went into day, the darkness went into light. I can believe it. Not to mention that Mr. C testing out this, making sure, because the biggest flaw in his current logic that he needed to test out was because two of the coordinates that correlated were here. I have a very important question. Probably the most important question we're going to ask in this entire episode. Go for it. Does Mr. C need to sleep? Because Mr. C doesn't need anything. He wants. Does he, does he actually... <laughs> I like to think like he does, but he sleeps with his eyes open because we saw him in a hotel room. Can he drive room. while he's sleeping? Maybe. I just, I'm, I'm actually... He just goes off the road and I'm just like I'm actually kind moving. of being serious because given he's not a natural human and mm -hmm. he's not like a tulpa that thinks they're a human, I almost wonder, does this guy actually need to eat, sleep, poop, any of those sort of things. We see him at the diner. Does he eat his food? I don't remember him eating his food. He might be chewing onto it, but there's also the question of like, what does that even affect? We are in the realm of blending things together that this man has had multiple other men dig into his organs yeah. uh, to repair I, him. I, I think so. if he's meant to not be a human at this point, I don't know if he needs to eat or sleep. I just think he can. I think it's yeah. optional. That'd be my headcanon, I guess. Again, I'm not really a huge fan of all of this because it's further getting into supernatural stuff that I'm not always a fan of. But mm -hmm. I'm just thinking logistically, it's a lot easier to go on a 12-hour drive in the middle of the night if you don't need to sleep. Mm -hmm. If he didn't need to go to a hotel or anything, he could just literally keep driving forever. Mm -hmm. And given the amount of distances he has to traverse to get from place to place to place, mm -hmm. it's possible. You also got to wonder about Dale Cooper's stamina for being able to drive from Odessa. Because <laughs> I, lo I love when he when Carrie Page is like, is it, a, is it a far away distance? It's like literally as far as you can get on this continent. Yeah, isn't it like, like Odessa and Texas? Yeah, Odessa, Texas to like, you got to go from Texas to the Pacific Northwest, like complete opposite ends of the country. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's long. They it's a ways away. They couldn't find an apartment in Florida. Florida, to make about, it completely. I don't know about you, but I could not just drive that going one way. Just go. It don't. I don't recommend it. I have done something akin to that. Okay. It, it, I don't recommend it. You may or may not be human. I'm trying to suggest here. Crashed in the Mojave Desert. Oh, that's 
That's, that's a whole. That if we did a Patreon, that'd be a Patreon exclusive. <laughs> if you want to learn about the professor crashing <laughs> in the Mojave Desert, um, just I, ask me. I do want to ask. What speaking of asking you things, Jerry? Do you like Jerry better in the Return of the Original Show? Original Show. Okay. And especially after the cook killed him. Okay. <laughs> did you did you like this as a story for Jerry in the Return? It was one of those cases where you never really had anything to say about it. You kind of just like looked at it, like, yep. And then you just kind of moved on. It didn't sense any interest or attachment. It's something that I don't have a larger compelling thing to give from. He's not like a favorite character. He's not anything big. But every time I saw him, I kind of like cocked my head and went, huh, okay, Jerry, where are you going? Well, <laughs> so your adventures it, it, today. It was satisfying to you? It's satisfying on the ends that I'm interpreting. See, to me, it's one of those cases where I would look at it and it's like, if I was if I was putting any stock in it, I would want it to quote-unquote go somewhere. Him just being off-screen, found naked in Wyoming feels really anticlimactic <laughs> if we expected Jerry to matter. But <laughs> the thing is, I don't think you ever expected Jerry to matter, so I think you were fine. Not to matter like he had to be a presence. I think he matters in a sense of background detail that continues the puzzle box thing. He is used. Yes. And I don't think that's necessarily fully bad. I, I see where it can be seen as bad. I can see where the perception goes, and then Jerry is utterly revolting in the sense of He just of doesn't like have a character. a character. Like, again, it's like, to me, there's not even contest talking to the original show versus this. Jerry's not one of my top, like, 30 Twin Peaks characters, I don't think. Mm -hmm. But he's at least got a personality. He's kind of fun. Mm -hmm. Here he's just off on weird adventures with his not foot. And I don't think it really goes anywhere that... Jerry and the not foot going on sweet adventures off onto the birdie boo. So, the drunk. That's the last miscellaneous thing I have from part 17. You speculated before that he might be Billy? He might be Billy or an analog for Billy. With this person with the open bleeding mouth and the sort of like being stuck inside of a cell... There is a concern of whether or not he should even be here in the first place. Yeah, I guess I want to say, first of all, that if it is Billy, I don't think it changes anything. Like, let's say it is Billy. Okay. What does that do? Like, oh, cool, it's Billy. Does that change anything? Because, like, Audrey's story is already done, basically, by this point. It puts up a potential foundation of if this is a Billy or analog for Billy on whether or not you believe any other foundation to be fully true. Well, because we have someone shouting in the Twin Peaks diner, where's Billy? That's the only indication we have for sure that the Audrey Roadhouse scenes about Billy have any connection to the rest of Twin Peaks. And maybe this is where Billy continues to go on. And maybe this is where Billy continues to live wherever Audrey yeah. is not living. I just have no interest in Billy as a concept. So to me, it's like, if it is him, okay. If it isn't him, okay. Like, I don't think it changes anything because I don't know who Billy is. I yeah. Think it's an arbitrary, random thing to me. Maybe he works at the same place as that one potential therapist or something so like that. So do you think it matters if it's Billy or not? I don't think it matters that it's Billy other than adding those details together in the background okay. of, like, stories happening in Twin Peaks. I just want to know how much of our interpretation hinges on that is basically my point, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, it seems like what he's representing and what he's doing in the scenes is more important than his name yes. in this particular case. Uh, one... One idea I want to highlight here is from another fellow Twin Peaks podcaster. Uh, this is from Counter Esperanto Podcast at Winds of the Weird on Twitter. Quote, the drunk is a troubling figure for a number of reasons. No way the Twin Peaks Sheriff Department would just let him bleed there. Is he even really present? This one glance, and they include a picture, from Freddy is the only indication that anyone but Chad sees him. End quote. So you had, you'd kind of wondered this too. Does anyone even see this character to know that they're even there, or is it just like a personal demon of Chad? 
It could be a personal demon of Chad. It I think could be Freddy something looking that Freddy at it looking is there. pretty clear. Pretty clear that it's real, but I can see the arguments where yes. like the mythical glove. You could argue man. that Freddy is a gifted and damned character. He can see things that are not other seen by other people. For me, it's one of those things that it's too flimsy because you have a look from Freddy, but no vocal acknowledgement. And so we can't even 100% confirm, does he really even see this guy? And if he sees it, does he see the same kind of person? For all we know, it's just a regular dude to him. Not to mention the person who said that the blood was dropping from his like mouth as a comparison point wasn't brought up as Audrey. It's just name association that we found out from people at the roadhouse. So if we are to believe at that night, those people at the roadhouse who recognize the bleeding mouth of this man and we see a bleeding mouth man inside a prison cell, it may very well be a case where he is real. And he is in a very bad place and no one knows what to do with but, him. But it leads with that situation where if he is really there, then the Twin Peaks Police Department put this man who is bleeding continuously in a jail cell without any medical attention. Uh, it looks like he got stitched up on his face before he tears it apart. So, um, But like, really? What do you do? Like, that's where I think if it's if he's really there, it's pretty damning. Yeah. Um, and it feels like a commentary, but also nothing else substantiated. It's because we're given almost universally positive indications about Hawk, Andy, Frank Truman. Like they're not portrayed as horrible people. Mm -hmm. um, putting a bleeding man in his condition in a jail cell without medical attention seems really weird for them. I agree. Which I think leads into the potential mythical end on whether or not he's not actually there and just an entity to be, maybe he's not a woodsman, but we did see a mythical person sitting in an adjacent jail cell, sort of like sitting by as another person was suffering earlier in the text with uh, Shaggy Dude. But again, Doom. that is a woodsman. It's a very specific visual element. This exactly. guy doesn't have that. To be honest, again, my cynical, maybe jaded view of things, I think David Lynch and Mark Frost put him there for mood. Mm -hmm. I think it's put there to mock Chad. Uh, and I think that it's something that was only meant to be that. I yeah. don't think it's meant to be supernatural. I don't think it's meant to be a commentary on the police. I think it wasn't fully thought through. Fair. I think it's just, we're going to put this guy here who's bleeding out the mouth and it's going to annoy Chad. Mm -hmm. And maybe there's a grander reason than that. I just don't think there's enough proof for it. In part 18, we've talked about obviously the ending. So I think most of that's already been addressed. There are a few other things. Uh, you mentioned earlier that they made a new Dougie Jones. Do you interpret this copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of whatever is this a happy ending? Cause like they manufactured a new husband for Janie E and a new father for Sonny Jim is all good. No worries. I, I think it's in a better result because the copy at first came from Mr. C who already was doppelganger to Cooper. So copy of copy in this respect to have it from what could be considered a quote unquote original source. Maybe we'll cause less dilution and also probably more closer to what might be a Dale Cooper. So we get a little bit of like a joyous dialogue before he just simply says home. And so it's happy it, ending. So I called a happy ending from the framing. Okay. And how do you feel like when you're watching that ending, do you feel emotionally like, oh, it's so sweet. Like no. it's good. What do you feel? I feel like, oh, they got a Dougie. See, that's what I feel too. But you, for some reason, like that. Yeah. I feel to me like it's this hollow plot point. Like I, it's, yep, it happened. Cool. I, we can I, wrap that one up. I think it's one of those things in which like it's a sweetness of a candy. It's something that for the most part, the taste is nice to me, but I'm not gaining fr anything from it. There's no like positive values to it. I'm not gaining any of my daily values from this candy. Congratulations. It's just a sweet pop. That's such a great review of the return. It gives me nothing I need. <laughs> wow. Sounds wonderful. <laughs> Love the aftertaste. That's not a review for the return. That's for certain instances such as this. 
such as a main component, Dougie, the plot line that took up a lot of the return. Exactly. Yeah. Cooper and Diane drive, you know, specifically 430 miles because 430 has to repeat. And, you know, there's this whole thing about their destination. Won't be what he expects, but he's insistent. Almost commanding Diane to kiss him, which is the first sign of several instances of him kind of ordering Diane. Um, at first, you can maybe interpret it a little bit nicely, but I think by the time you get to the sex scene, it really gets recontextualized. I just want to note before we get to the motel that the power line structure that he is near when he is indicating that this is the place... Other people have noted it. I'm a subscriber to this as well, to some degree, that mm-hmm. the power lines look like the Jowde symbol. Oh! Because you have the two little antennae things poking up at the top, and then it's kind of got, like, the diamond shape. Oh, no, that's cool! I, I think it's a coincidence. I don't know if it's on purpose. I don't think it means a whole lot other than just electricity at mm-hmm. base. But at this point, electricity at base is, like, an obvious thing. Yeah. Even to the point where Philip Gerard just says out of nowhere, electricity with electricity. Philip Jeff, which I don't know. To me, that felt a little bit like, okay, cool. Like, I don't, I don't really know what him saying. It has to do with anything. Cause by this point, yes, <laughs> yes, it is. Yes. Philip Gerard. We know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's just saying a word at that point to me, but maybe, maybe you could argue Drink that it, your oval Dean. Maybe you could argue it ties into Hawks talking about the map that the fire on the map represents kind of like modern day electricity. Mm-hmm. So Philip Gerard saying it is supposed to indicate to the audience that this thing with Philip Jeffries is the thing on the map with the fire. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I want to run with that or not, but like or maybe as a reminder to Cooper to keep in mind for electricity because he's got all the keys that he needs at this point. But just as a reminder and remember electricity. I think like the one of the biggest arguments I would use against the happy ending interpretation of part 18 is what happens at the motel because even before we get involved with Carrie Page when it's actually it's clearly Dale Cooper they go to the portal things are not supposed to be the way they're going to be before and it's suddenly night when they're driving they go to this motel first ominous thing of course they're driving at night all of a sudden they're not talking to each other it feels kind of eerie but then while they're at the while Cooper's inside getting the you know reservation at the motel Diane's in the car and she sees herself there not only sees herself but she like walks around the corner looks back at herself i think it's one of those first indications where like diane is realizing something important either about herself or what she has to come to acknowledge i just think it's eerie i don't know beyond that what it means or who is that other diane there's two realities that i can think of one is the reality memory or thought process that she is not the only one whether she is the original recognizing her doppelgangers or whether she is a doppelganger acknowledging something that is another doppelganger original something that could be very much complicated but i think it is where diane is coming to acknowledge something deeper about herself and her presence here what is the something that since the person walks around the corner and looks at her and stops no approach or anything like that it feels like a waiting it feels like she is not meant to be there that like something is expecting her to come back in this okay. case. So it's almost as if her other self, her incomplete self, or the self that she has left behind is looking at her from behind the corner and is waiting for her. All right. They go into the motel and the, I want to give props to David Lynch here in that he managed to make the most uncomfortable and disturbing scene of all of the return, possibly among the highest in Twin Peaks, there's a lot of things in Fire Walk with me that are very disturbing or Maddie's death. But definitely the most disturbing scene for me in The Return is a sex scene. 
It is. It's ostensibly a lovemaking scene between Dale Cooper and his true love. And as an example towards, uh, I would say, for David Lynch's ability to kind of juxtapose the uh, the positive effects versus extreme negatives. I think it's a phenomenal a, scene. Yeah, exactly. It's like where it's trying to like show off with this beautiful music that's going on that seems triumphant in a sense that is met with a long silence in between where the, the actor... Well, not even silence. Actor, it's not silence. It's ambience. There's it's a ambience. droning. There is a droning. And that's important to me, I think. It is very important. Diane ends up like through this as she continues to move across it. You see her look up and the, like the horrible sort of like twisting facial structure of it goes through when her hands wrap around the neck as Wells covers see, the face before she's completely completely covered even when she's looking up yeah. far away and the hands are completely covered she's trying to disassociate or at the very least keep the face covered I'm 100% on your interpretation Cooper. 100% your interpretation just want to add though that part of what makes this so good though is that there's that plausible deniability element where her facial expressions could be pained pleasure right that that could be a form of sexual release mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily mean what we're interpreting it as it's not something that reads and uh it's not something that seems to be in my reading there are more than one ways to interpret her agonized face yes and i think that that's what really really helps i think it really helps and but I the think return that of my prayer of all songs the song that played when the woodsman was you know doing his thing right yeah, actually, you didn't. You didn't catch. I didn't catch. Oh that. no, it's my. It's literally my prayer. It's the song that plays over the <laughs> in part eight. As they're that's tucked a away huge into bed. That's a huge thing right before their rest. Yeah, so that's an ominous thing. Uh, but even again, before the sex scene, it's that ordering mentality where Diane's like, "Well, what happens now?" And Cooper's like, "You come over to me." It's like a command. It's, it's not affectionate. It's it, not romantic. It's, it's not anything. Something that can be read as affectionate uh, in a style of being like, I finally have you here. The tone, though, I is have you buried now. in neutra <laughs> neutrality. And then again, during the sex scene, not, even before she covers his face, his face is unreacting. His face mm -hmm. is null. And this is where we both have expressed feelings on the Dougie scene, the sex scene with uh, Janie E., but I think that this all this this does a long ways to justify or you know retroactively add a lot of context to the Doug E. Janie E. lovemaking scene, especially since and maybe it's just because it's easy for the framing. It is the same sexual position, it yep. is the same stance, except where there is a lightness, where there is humor, where there is something that is very light. This is heavy. And if there was again ever anything that I want to say is like on purpose, that comparison's on purpose. Mm -hmm. It's like you said, even down to the position, down to the position down the fact that they're literally like uh, distant sisters and in both shots we get shots of cooper's face yes but with dougie it's this like bewildered joy and this one it is stone, stone. faces faces of stone albert mm. and it's it's incredibly uncomfortable it's incredibly like jarring the the visual of the hands on the face i don't know what it is about it but it taps into something like subconscious for me at least like when when the hands are on the face it's like it brings to mind like horrible silent hill hellraiser type imagery because it's using sexuality with pain with trauma with the sort of covering of the physicality it, there's an element of the unseen mm -hmm. that because I know what his face looked like before and then you cover it up, there's something like intuitive to me. And I think a lot of people maybe about the idea that it's what you don't see. That's horrifying. 
It is one of the... It's knowing that underneath her hands is coldness. Yes. And we're just seeing the hands there, but you know it's there and she can't fully hide that either. That is, I think, very powerful. And amidst all these, again, negative things I will say about part 17, with part 18, the execution's phenomenal. And with part 18, I don't have a lot of gripes because part 17 is the one that has the the nonsense with Freddy and all the stuff going on there. Part 18, you can interpret the Jowday stuff with it. I don't mm-hmm. you know, want it to be that. But in terms of like the feeling... <laughs> I remember when I first watched part 18, just this feeling of dread and uncertainty that was captivating for me. I loved part 18 in the moment, but I loved it in the sense of dread because it was that feeling of like, oh my God, I'm watching the end of Twin Peaks and I have no clue what's happening. Mm-hmm. And it's that feeling of watching this uncertainty and the coldness and things things being somewhat familiar but not at the same time. I think there's a lot of wonderful things that are being done here in part 18 I just have trouble when I can't connect it to the rest of the return. Like I look at part eight and part 18 is such outliers that I like in isolation. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to connecting them to the rest of it, I'm kind of just like, I don't know what to do about that. Mm -hmm. I just like them on their own as mood pieces. They're very good. Mm -hmm. And I think to part 18's benefit, it does do things with previous material that are striking because we know Diane's experience with Mr. C and because we know the Janie E. Dougie love scene, it does do a lot more for the scene between uh, Dale Cooper and Diane in the motel. It does. I'd argue that this is one of the most powerful, if not the powerful scenes inside The Return. Yes. So I, I completely in agreement with you there. I, I've got nothing there. It's also, for me personally, hard for me not to think of another lovemaking scene with the woman on top, although not in a bed situation, and that would be Sam and Tracy before they got eviscerated. <laughs> and considering the fact that they had that lovemaking scene and then the evisceration happened, we already, from the very beginning of the series, have this connotation of these sex rituals being the re- resulting in devastation. Mm-hmm. And depending on how you interpret Part 18's ending, and if you interpret the experiment to be Day, yes, it seems like the experiment Day struck again. In a different way. In a different Something way. Something was totally annihilated. Least. It just might be more in Hawk's sense of totally annihilating your soul. Yes. Something happened. Yes. And something does happen the following morning, seeing as a letter is left behind with two strange names. Richard and Linda time and time again. In which Cooper, or potentially Richard, well, I Cooper still... doesn't recognize, like, he's like, Richard, Linda. Maybe he remembers the names being important, but he does seem to be confused by the context. He doesn't mm-hmm. seem to self-identify as Richard. He... And based on the way he talks to Carrie Page later, he seems to think of himself as Dale Cooper still. Yes, it seems he still keeps himself as Dale Cooper. It seems he recognizes himself as Dale Cooper. There's a still a little bit of a strange dissonance. He also calls he for recognizes. Diane at first, so he, he does. he's remembering that. He is someone who has more knowledge in the world than he likely should likely because of where he's come from as well as what he's done because very notably when he exits the hotel the one of the points of dissonance which i would probably catch on to is the fact that this is not a single floor hotel it's two floors and the vehicle is black but it's a whole different make and model yes he seems to react more to the vehicle Weirdly enough, in the Twin Peaks wiki, it only mentioned the vehicle. It didn't mention the motels being different. Yeah. Which I think is the more jarring <laughs> thing. They just built a second floor overnight. It's the same place. But yeah, so it's a different motel. It's a different car. Um, he seems to be reacting to this with the sort of understanding that things are weird. I think what's being played with here is I think David Lynch is playing with the idea that we might be wondering right now as an audience if Dale Cooper is the dreamer. Mm-hmm. Because he wakes up from sleep mm-hmm. and everything's changed. Mm-hmm. Which plants the idea, oh, it's the dreamer waking up. But then the rest of part 18 does not confirm that. Yeah. It does not even 
remotely confirm it. You could still take it as your headcanon. I don't think it disproves it. But the way he's acting and what ends up happening at the end, if they would have gone with Carrie Page to the Tremont house and the Palmer house formerly and nothing happened at the end, then it could be, oh, yeah, it's not Dale Cooper. It's not Laura Palmer. But the fact that the Laura scream happens and everything, you know, reacts to electricity, something's going on beyond the real guy woke up. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, we got to say that. I mean, the most that I could say is that as Cooper, like, the furthest I can go with the Cooper being the dreamer end is more so Richard being the dreamer. Yeah. But Cooper is the one who wakes up and kind of like meccas uh, Richard. Be. In a sense that if we are to believe that or at the very least, I might believe that there's other dreamers that can be multiple dreamers that can go on simultaneously. The fact that the girl goes to sleep at the lullaby in the past mm-hmm. and then Richard wakes up, that this might be that same sort of like level of world. If we go in like tiers of worlds. Yeah. I'm not going for tiers of worlds. Though. We're going for our world tier list right world now. World tier folks. list. Richard goes to eat at Judy's or Dale Cooper eats at Judy's, whatever you want to call. I'm going to call him Cooper. You can call him Richard if you want. I'm going to call him Cooper Yeah, so because Coop- it's Cooper. Cooper goes to eat at Judy's following kind of the the, the logic of, okay, Judy's, that's suspicious. And follow intuition. You follow intuition. He Okay, I'm going to assume it's intuition, although it could be prior knowledge. For all we know, he had a conversation with Philip Jeffries in the past, and he told him, when you go to Judy, you're going to find Carrie Page. Like, I don't, you know, I don't know. Maybe. From what we got to see, it doesn't seem like that that's the case, but I do enjoy that that could be a possibility. I like the idea of like, be sure to go to Judy's. It's an excellent restaurant. Yeah. You got to try their eggs. Here's my link to my Yelp review. <laughs> Just like, and it puffs out in smoke yeah. and is like this little despondent, <laughs> or it goes one letter at a time. So like, this is where I think on the most basic level and probably the level that's easiest to endure, it's the idea that it's called Judy's out of, again, intuition logic, coincidence logic. It's a motivator for that. But like, given everything you've said about Jow Day and Judy, do you read into the name of the diner anything more than that? I read into it that it is a diner set and the position of the Laura Palmer figure is mirrored with... Teresa Banks, and that's okay. her sense of Irene's. You go off to this bar to find out that she's a hostess around there. She's not coming to work for multiple days. Uh, okay, good idea. So that, that's where I'm kind of paralleling at the moment. So there's that encounter with the group of men who are harassing the waitress. Everything about the way he handles it is cold, calculating, mechanical. And don't get me wrong, we know that Dale Cooper is an efficient lawman. We, we've seen him be very efficient and dispatch, you know, criminals and, and apprehend people. We've also seen Dougie kick into action and tear his hand off and all that stuff. Yes. But there's something about the way that Richard carries it, the coldness of it, the, the kind of matter of factness in which he replies to the men at first. And most ominously, I would say of all, is when he goes and asks for the address for Carrie, he's still holding the gun. He has yet to tell the waitress he's with the FBI. He's just a man holding a gun near a waitress. He does towards the end, but still, but regardless. after the fact. After the fact, as he's, like, handing his gun, like, pointing around and then sticks guns into the fryer. Yes, and I have things and- to say about that. I just want to make the note that... For, I don't know about you, but this is where things start feeling really wrong because this doesn't feel like Dale Cooper. Not to mention the posing of it feels very unnatural because yes. it stays stiff like you're playing GoldenEye 007 so, with your little gun. what is your interpretation of that then? That his voice, mannerisms, everything doesn't feel like Dale Cooper. Even though he says he's Dale Cooper, he has the memories and ideas of Dale Cooper, presumably. Why is he acting more like Mr. C? He is current, uh, from what I'm... T- Interpreting, using an example of not only the very end sequence where he's wondering what year it is at that time, but 
also from all the experience we've seen with Dougie Jones, there could be an adjustment period. There could be something in which like things aren't fully connecting. He knows of his goal. He knows what he has to do. And acting as this agent of guardian angel, he's just doing everything that he can do to get to that point. Uh, at this point, he's still doing things as a source of good, but he's not giving any mind credence or nuance to anything around him other than good actions. Okay, he sees, but- like, bad is going on to the area, so he quickly dispels of that, does that, says, I need the information, without nuance or mind. So you think when he freshly woke up in the hospital, he was still not quite no. adjusted? No, I think that this is just... The point that he gets transported to this world through the hotel room is very similar when he's transported to the socket. Less extreme, mind you. He's more comfortable in bed. But to say that in this new world that he is in with the new car and the new hotel and the name Richard around him, to say that there might be an adjustment period like when he went through the socket with Dougie Jones, I can believe in that. When Dale Cooper is deep frying these guns, he has three of them he deep fries. When he got the guns, he only had two. Yes. So I want to clarify the timeline here just to make sure logic's on the, uh, everything here. Man draws gun. Cooper slams that gun down on the table, kicks the man in the groin, draws his own gun. There's currently a gun on the table and a gun in his hand, right? Mm-hmm. Then at gunpoint, he gets the third man to give him his gun, which at first he says he doesn't have one. Then he puts it on the floor. So Cooper gets up after the three men are on the floor, one's sitting, one's been shot in the foot, and one's been kicked in the groin. All three are on the floor. Mm -hmm. He grabs the gun that was on the floor. He has the gun in his hand, his own, Mm -hmm. and the two guns. He never got the gun from the man he, uh, the, the third man there, right? He just only has two. Then he goes behind the scenes to the deep fryer. He has three guns in addition to his own. Yes. Is that a glitch? Is that a glitch? I'm going to call this a mistake. I'm going to call this a mistake that doesn't matter, but it shows a sloppiness that I'm a bit surprised about because it's a continuity error. Mm. It's he, there was, I think what happened is in the script, there were three bad guys, therefore three guns, but he never got that third gun. One gun he got by slamming on the table and one he got by asking at gunpoint. Yeah. That second one never, it never, yeah, he never got another one. Mm. So I'm just like, I look at that and it's like, that's some sloppiness I wouldn't expect out of the end of the return. I mean, there's also the solution that like the guns like breed by mitosis. It's a, it's a mistake. It's a mistake. <laughs> and it's just to say the Twin Peaks, the return is not perfect. Not everything's on purpose. Some things can just be a mistake. This is probably the best example I can come up with of the return of something that is just a mistake. Fair. Or a glitch. No, it's not. <laughs> it's, it's outright not a glitch. It's not a glitch. We do not see any glitches in the world that Richard's in. I, I, I don't see that or, or whatever's going on with Dale Cooper there. Mm-hmm. He also passes along the way to Carrie Page's house, the utility pole with the number six on it, which I believe is supposed to be the one that has been seen previously in fire walk with me. And maybe also the one that was by the kid who got run over by the truck, Recurring but I'm numbers. a little bit confused if it's the same one or not. Yeah. Yeah. Carrie page is Carrie page, Laura Palmer. Hmm? The last bit of Laura Palmer, I believe just because the names have been on the nodes. When Carrie page opens the door, she asks, did you find oh, him? Not to mention also the screaming of looking up at the top of the room at the very end of the show. In which I think is very notable for someone to scream as they look at so the top. So do you think floor. it's like a Tulpa situation? Because I remember reading that before that someone said that Carrie Page is like the Tulpa Diane who basically, or Tulpa Dougie, like doesn't realize who they are until later and then they realize who they are. I think she But re- with a twist that it actually is them and not a mistake Yeah, Tulpa. I think it's literally kind of a Tulpa situation, but more so it's the last remnants of Laura Palmer. The so last do you, do you think this is, this is Laura Palmer who didn't die, then went into like hiding and forgot her old life of amnesia? 
or was made to forget supernaturally, or is this a different timeline? Is this a third timeline? I think line? it goes straight into that metaphor of the last bit that remains, the one that's been tucked away and hidden off to way off to the furthest ends of the world, almost to try to keep a little bit of hope still out there. Okay. But then Dale Cooper brings that hope in then. Here See, you go. I think Laura Palmer's story was already done in Fire Walk with me, so I'm just yeah. kind of looking at this like... It's using Laura Palmer as that golden orb. It's using yeah. Laura Palmer as that ideal thing and something MacGuffin. that could heal. It's turning Laura into a MacGuffin. It's using Laura Palmer as a bandage against Joe Day. I don't like that. Um, so Carrie Page opens the door and she says, did you find him? That is her first question. Who do you believe is the him? It's whoever Carrie Page is having issues with because we see at least one of the goons or the main goon or the main guy. Maybe it was like someone that would be able to help her out with the fact that she murdered a man and the corpse is right there. I think that there's a storyline going on with Carrie Page that the only context we get for is that she got herself into a lot of trouble with Mm. a guy. Part, Part of me has led to the meta reading that Carrie Page is in some way a metaphor also for the viewers that the did you find him is the urgent asking of did you find the killer to Laura Palmer? Mm -hmm. Who is the killer? And that answer that's seeking for an answer. And then at first cautiously is head to go back to Twin Peaks. Again, going back to Twin Peaks to be a metaphor for the third season, The Return. Mm -hmm. And that when she goes back to Twin Peaks, what she ends up finding is something incomprehensible and terrifying. Yes. So if I read Carrie Page as not only an element of Laura Palmer, but also an abstraction of the viewer who is wanting answers, wanting closure, and then ends up getting confused more by the end and screaming, mm-hmm. that works. I don't find it. I don't find it especially good. But yeah. I, I, it's it's a reading that kind of does fit. If I want to take any meaning to "Did you find him?" it could be the killer or something. Mm-hmm. But speaking of killers, we see inside of her house a man, a dead man, shot in the head, man, and I. I think he kind of looks like a Bob Mr. C type, but he's not the same thing at all. He's not. What, did, did Carrie kill him? Yeah. Was she justified? What yeah. happened? Man's dead. Okay. Man's dead is sitting inside a chair, probably at a point of point blank, and it was probably in one of those desperate situations. If we are to read Carrie Page in a similar light to Laura Palmer, if we're going to parallel. Otherwise, she's thing. a serial killer. Elsewise. Uh, we haven't seen more than one kill. Okay, fine. So they're not a, a serial kill, killer, just one killer. One killer. Can't break out the cereal box yet. Notably, when Cooper says her father's name is Leland, she's like, okay, so what? But then when he's like, yeah, your mother's name is Sarah, and she's like, Sarah? So, like, for some reason, the name Sarah being her mother's name affects her a lot more than Leland being her father. Yeah. I'm looking at you imploringly. You're looking at me imploringly. It could be something that is when he gets two for two. And she's getting more details. That's when, like, it shakes the foundation. It could be specifically because it was Sarah Palmer. It seems very specific to me. It could be. It could be. I'm not discounting it, but it could be for the sake of the specificness of Sarah Palmer that I don't know if Laura Palmer, other than having, like, the usual teenage issues with her mother, would have too much to gripe against. I don't think the secret history of Twin Peaks makes that. No, I wouldn't say it's supported. Yeah, so in this, material. in this case, it's more of a figure that could be more positively associated with the figure if we think that okay. the specific Because the reaction important. difference seems really on point that Leland's a non-reaction and then Sarah Palmer like actually affects her very deeply. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know what to do with that difference very much. I take it as the second swing of the axe that as long as you keep hitting at certain notes, eventually okay. things are going to tip over for the tree. Okay, interesting. Uh, also, notably on in her house is the white figurine of a horse. What? A white horse? What could that Against mean? Against a black plate. What does it mean, actually? Black and white. Horse of death. 
something being like black and absolute could be very reflective, if you will. Okay. Something that you would be served up with. Black being something with a plate, Garmambosia. I do like the image of the white horse. I think it's a nice, like, specific, but not overbearing way to tie in something that could mean more, but doesn't have to. Yeah. I, I like it. I like the ambiguity of the white horse figure. I think it's the promise of death with the context of Garmbosia that's about to come. The long drive ensues. Not much conversation happens. Carrie does reminisce about Odessa, uh, talking at first about how she tried to keep her house clean, which you can maybe take as a metaphor for keeping her life clean. Yeah. And she said, in those days, I was too young to know any better. And again, it's unclear. Does she mean in those days of being Laura Palmer? Or does she mean in those days of being a new character, Carrie Page? Mm -hmm. It is not completely clear. No, I'm leaning to the Carrie Page end just because the fuller realizations come up later. So I think we're getting some good exposition for I think the we're Carrie getting Page not life. much exposition at all. I think saying I tried to keep my house clean and I used to I didn't know better, it's not really telling us anything. It's a hypothetical realm in which if we are to associate Carrie Page as a Laura Palmer that managed to grow up and grow older, that even then she was still faced with the trials and tribulations later in her life, though she was able to live on for well, another 25 years. The last thing I have on here is that when they do reach the Palmer household, we talked about the Tremond Chalfont element. Mm -hmm. The other thing to, of course, talk about is that Alice Tremond, uh, not only Alice, as in maybe Alice in Wonderland, I... but also Lost Highway, Alice Wakefield, ha. which, not a joke, wake, the dream, the idea of waking up, it's pretty on the nose if you draw the Wakefield comparison. Mm -hmm. But Alice is a name that, again, has connotations of Alice in Wonderland, at least to me, and is played by an interesting performance. So and is played by an interesting choice of actor. So Alice Tremond is played by Mary Reber, the real owner in real life of the Palmer home. So <laughs> not only that, but the person she's talking to uh, outside of view, I think is also her husband. Like it is literally the people who live in that house in real life. Yes. Which I think adds fuel to the fire if you wanted to believe that Dale Cooper woke up in the real world or something. The problem is that it inserts a fictional story about Shelfont that I'm assuming is not real. Yeah. That, but then also, her name's not really Alice Tremont in real life. But also, as I said before, the double R, the double R diner, they go to Twin Peaks. So why cast the real person who owns the home but inviting this meta angle if it's not actually the real world? I think there's a few benefits. For one, if David Lynch approaches and finds this home and there's a person that lives there, they happen to be a fan of Twin Peaks. Like, having the opportunity to not only have this fun Easter egg, but also be like, hey, do you want to be involved with this? We have a scene that could be involved with this, and they're a big mm -hmm. fan. Like, it could be just, a, like, a fun opportunity for the person, especially if you were to mark down the price or, at the very least, make a relative price that seems fair with the associated role to use your home yes. for scenes. And I want to clarify, I do a lot of rhetorical questions now and then. This is one where I do like her being the person. I think yes. it adds an interesting element, even if I don't know what it fully means. But I do wonder, like, how important was this casting? Like, let's say, for example, if Mary Reber, the homeowner, didn't want to be in the show, didn't didn't feel comfortable acting, yeah. was it important for this to be the owner of the home in real life? I'm like, not, was this something David Lynch really meant as, like, a reason to do this? I'm not fully convinced. I think that there could be an argument where it's just like, yeah, kind of, like, play with that weird meta angle. Which world are we in? Are we beyond the dream? I think that that could be a potential question you could bring up. But on the other end, judging by the existence of Frank Truman... If they couldn't get the casting to be that case or it wasn't a conversation that that casting was agreed upon, mm -hmm. would he get someone else to fill the role? I think so. Okay. 
Interesting. Do you have anything else that you wish to bring up about Part 17 and 18 in Twin Peaks The Return? I like him. You know what I like? The whoosh encounter! I really like the whoosh encounter this time. You didn't even, like, make a build-up. You just flopped a whoosh in my face. The same way that Part 17 dropped whooshes left and right. You watched it with subtitles. You know what I mean. Yeah. But only one of us counted them. Only only one of us was uh, at a capacity to count them. To set the stage, previously, Parts 1 through 16, we had 60 whooshes total. Okay. Part 17 gave us 42. How do you feel, Khalil? That nearly the entire quantity of... It's literally the beginning and ending that give you all the whooshes. Yeah, basically. Yeah, the, the experiment section. This one section. especially so because, yes. like, even then, like, I'm pretty sure what was, like, the first episode's whoosh like, mouth? It was, like, 10 or 20. Like, it was, yeah, it was, no, it, was, it doubles! Yes. So, the single best thing about Part 17 is the number of whooshes. Cannot stand Part 17 in the broad strokes of things. I've made that very clear, I think. Mm-hmm. Number of whooshes, so beautiful. And I, and I say this jokingly. The thing I find really amusing about the use of the term whoosh is that it is not a very common word to use to describe things. There are a few instances in which if I was writing something, I might describe it as a whoosh, but very rarely. It's not usually a word that comes to my mind, let alone to use it as a catch-all term for nearly everything. Yes. Like car traffic, that's a whoosh. Uh, the fan. Okay, those can whoosh. I agree with that. Uh, ethereal whooshing, ominous whooshing. Any sound effect made by an entity outside of our realm, it's a whoosh. It's all whoosh. Which is where, it, like, I haven't read it yet, but I'm still interested in the idea that John Thorne, one of the key figures in Twin Peaks, that he wrote the book Ominous Whoosh about the return. <laughs> it's such a great title because, yeah, that's what the subtitles keep doing is Ominous Whoosh. It's so good. Anyway, 42 whooshes in part 17. Part 18, a little more conservative, but still a good showing of nine whooshes. Bringing us to a total, if my count is correct, mm. if I did not miss any or double count, uh-huh. 111 whooshes. Would it have been better if it was 110 or 112? Yes. Will I accept 111? I will. How powerful is the number 1112? It's pretty good. I mean, like, I think if it was a perfect 100, that'd be pretty powerful. It's like the number of a completion times 10. But like the reoccurring ones, reoccurring is not good ones enough. is pretty good. I mean, if it's like one, one, two, would you be more happy? Well, since each that's one even? represents a Kyle McLaughlin. We got the Dale, we got the Mister C, we got the Dougie. All ones. All of them are a whoosh. number one. So yeah, hundred eleven. Did it did it meet or exceed your expectations? It it was all your expectations. So yes, it did. Then is what you're saying. <laughs> so. I always say expect the unexpected. And by always say, I mean, I've never said that once in this podcast, but I'm saying it now because you know, at this point, there's a lot of times a wonderful and strange question of the week. Professor, what if I told you I had 10? You still have 10 too, after all our discussion. Well, well, okay. Like some of them, he kind of already answered, but I want a declarative answer at the end. Fair. So what I want to do is I want to give you a volley of 10 questions. I just want to shoot them at you one after another. And I want your succinct answer to them. You could do it in as few words as you want. Number one, who is the dreamer? Sarah Palmer or Laura Palmer, you're leaning on Sarah. Number two, what is the blue rose? Something weird in nature. Number three, what are owls? Spiritual-like beings, but also sometimes literal owls. Number four, is it the story of the little girl who lived down the lane? Yes, but not the one you expect. That being Sarah Palmer from down the lane. Is it future or is it past? 
both? Because if we do believe that the dream can go on, maybe it's never ended or maybe it's still in that instance. It is something in the past as time is going on. What year is this? Right now, 2022. Inside the narrative, time doesn't matter in the sense of the year other than it passes. Is it about the bunnies? It's chocolate sweet with the tinfoils left behind. I'm going to leave the long pause you gave. Those are the most thought you've given to any of these so far. <laughs> Number eight, what happened to Josie? She's at the beginning of the uh, little section where she's like doing her makeup, and I imagine there's no drawing up she has to be trapped in this timeline. How's Annie? God. Number 10, who killed Laura Palmer? Me. No, Pete Leland. <laughs> I had no clue how <laughs> off the wall, <laughs> up its own rear, your answer was going to be. I'm really glad you just went for that. <laughs> that is gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. Next time on Twin Peaks Wonderful and Strange Logcast Twin Peaks, we're going to be talking about the special features of the return. Is this going to be one part? Is this going to be two parts? 27 parts. 27 parts. It's going to be one part, but longer than this episode you're listening to right now? We don't know. Well, anything can happen. Anything. So if you haven't checked out the returns from the Z to A collection and you have that available to you, that's what we're going to be talking about. Let's go. Let's go. Let's rock. What's a good ending for that? I know let's rock is good, but like this is, this is, what should we do? It could be let's rock. Then it goes. Do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do